Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome back, listeners, to the second installment in our Christopher Nolan movie review series. Today we are reviewing Memento, leading up to Christopher Nolan's brand new film, Tenant. This is your co-host, Corbin. And I'm Alan. Memento came out two years after his very first film following. If you haven't heard our thoughts on that film, then go ahead and check that out. It's interesting to note that Memento came out March 16th, 2001, and the previous film came out in April. So I don't know. I'm thinking he's hoping there's some kind of sweet spot, I guess, with targeting that early spring pre-summer release. Yeah, it sure seems like it because it was a pretty early on to release a movie, especially of, I guess, what Memento, the caliber of Memento, feels closer to a Hollywood similar blockbuster than than following did. Yeah, it did. Now, not a lot of people are heading to the movies in March. Um, it's tapered off from January and February with all the garbage movies. So it's kind of nestled nicely mm-hmm. in between the garbage and the greatness yet to come. Right. It's And I would say this movie at the time when it came out was a hidden gem. Oh, yeah. Yeah, especially for the early 2000s. This is very much a... Hidden Gem, especially from a director who I'm sure at this point not very many people had heard of because he had only done following and that would be that'd be all that he had finished or all that he had released so far. And that was pretty much exclusively film festival releases. And if you think about the cast of Memento, Guy Pierce wasn't very well known at the time. Mm-hmm. Originally, they wanted Brad Pitt. And we also have Carrie Ann Moss and uh, John Pantoliano, who both starred together the previous, well, yeah, the previous year in The Matrix. That's right. Now, I do want to give you listeners a little taste of what it was like to go to the movie theaters in 2001. 2001 was just an absolutely massive year. Oh, yeah. For cinema. It was huge. Um, so tons of great anime came out. Spirited Away. Cowboy Bebop the movie. Ah, uh, yes. We got to see that in the theater together. We did get to see Cowboy Bebop the movie in theaters together, which was an incredible experience. Mm-hmm. And also one of Alan's newer favorites, he showed me, absolutely loved it, Millennium Actress. Oh, crap. That's right. I did come out in 2001. <laughs> I totally forgot about that. Yeah. You, If you haven't seen Millennium Actress, that's an underrated gem oh, from yeah. 2001 as well. Toshi Cone's a maniac. So also we spoke about David Lynch a little bit last time. Well, David Lynch wasn't going to not give Christopher Nolan all of this. He probably saw it and was like, I love this guy. I can't wait to meet him. Yeah. <laughs> that's my thoughts. Um, a Holland Drive came out in 2001. That's right, which we have also watched together. And that's a very, a it's a very mind-bending film along with, uh, I guess, following in a lot of ways. Yeah, this was like the, the period of mind-bending films because yeah. Donnie Darko also came out as well. That's true. Which also is quasi non-linear the way certain things happen. I don't know. That movie's amazing. Check that out. Yep. 
Of course, Peter Jackson debuted his Juggernaut trilogy with The Fellowship of the Ring in uh, 2001. Yes. That's right. Uh, Harry Potter also premiered. Uh, the Sorcerer's Stone, Monsters, Inc., Shrek, A Beautiful Mind, One Best Picture. Oh, yeah. The Juggernaut series that is still going on to this. It's going to come out this year. It's coming out next year now. The Fast and the Furious. Mm-hmm. Jurassic Park 3, which we have reviewed. The Princess Diaries, Ocean's Eleven, Moulin Rogue, Training Day, Hannibal. We've reviewed it. I kind of forgot about that That's movie right. until I saw that. We did review that. Oh, uh, Spy Kids. Oh, uh, here's man. one. Here's a blast from the past. Osmosis Jones. Oh, man. I remember I loved that TV show when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, I, I loved watching Osmosis Jones on Cartoon Network. Um, Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes, mm -hmm. the critically acclaimed, one of the greatest TV shows ever, Hanks and Spielberg's Band of Brothers oh, also yeah. came out on HBO. Yeah, so what I'm seeing is a lot of, in terms of uh, films that have come out, a lot of uh, franchise starters, Lord of the Rings, yeah. uh, Harry Potter, things like that are being, are being released. Oh yeah, Shrek 2 as well, are being yep. released now uh, in 2001. A lot of franchise starters, that's interesting. This was the beginning of it all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now it should be noted that Memento is actually based on a short story, Memento More, by Jonathan Nolan, who just so happens to be Chris Nolan's younger brother. That's right. Now I have read this short story. And, and it's it's very good, actually. Okay. I, I'm very impressed with it. Jonathan Nolan was very young at the time. Also, he was in his early to any early 20s. After we after the spoiler break, I can talk a little bit more about it. Okay. But it is worth digging up. It's pretty easy to find. It's on Esquire.com. That's where it was originally published. Um, I did also notice the score was done by David, David Julian, who will work with Christopher Nolan in the future. And Julian noted that his synth score was inspired by Vangelis's Blade Runner and really? Hans Zimmer's The Thin Red Line. Really? That's interesting. Yeah, and it just so happens Nolan will work a lot with Hans Zimmer in the future. Oh, yeah, pretty much. Uh, I think it would be when he starts uh, making Batman. From then on, he pretty much exclusively will work with Hans Zimmer. Mm -hmm. And it is interesting because this is Nolan's second R-rated film. Mm -hmm. His first three films are R-rated, and then from there on out, he would strictly speak with the P stick with the PG-13. I don't know if we know what Tenet is rated yet, but maybe it'll be rated R. I don't know. Yeah, I'll be I'll be a little bit surprised if it's if it's rated R. He seems to make movies nowadays that try to appeal to uh, to that PG-13 rating, but also pushing it just a little bit, um, but staying within the almost all ages. Uh, can watch it kind of a realm. And honestly, if they would have taken out a couple of F words in following, it would have been PG 13. Yeah. And this movie deals with some heavy subject matters and has some mild violence. But uh, once again, I'm pretty sure the language, just those F words, is what gives this the R rating. Mm -hmm. So currently, according to IMDb, this holds a massive 8.4. A huge jump from so following wasn't following a 
7.5, yes. which is incredibly respectable. That's a great number. And then this jumps almost a full point to an 8.4. Right, which is very, very good, especially for a second feature. This is very impressive. Very. Oh, incredibly impressive. Yeah. And this film has stood the test of time. It's currently considered the 56th greatest film of all time. Oh, yeah. On AMDB's top 250. That's a solid placement. And the year it came out was the year it came out on the two top 250, and it's stayed there ever since. It debuted at number 10 and was there for the next year, but it's been going up by about 15 every five years. Gotcha. Now, Rotten Tomatoes has given this film a whopping 92% certified fresh. Yikes. That's that's really high. <laughs> oh, it's incredibly high with 94% audience approval rating and a meta score of 80. So, yeah, these scores are pretty much all around the same ballpark. Very, very high. Very respectable, which for these critically and seems like audience scores is about the same uh very very high as well very high and the budget for this film is whopping compared to his measly six thousand dollars but uh he has a whopping budget of nine million dollars to work with this time right which is about right considering the movie that we have and considering who no one is at the, the time that he made that movie, $9 million is about right for a movie like this. It really is. And it did reap some great rewards at the box office. Now, okay, opening weekend, it debuted at number 27, but it was only in 11 theaters. Ah, okay. So I'd say for 11 theaters in the country at number 27. It's not bad. Impressive. Not yeah. bad at all. It did eventually have a wide release of 531 theaters, which is very, very small. And according to Box Office Mojo, it was in theaters for 41 weeks, hmm. which doesn't. That's the thing about most of his movies. It'll say they're in the theaters for like 70 weeks. And that's clearly well over a year. And that's got to be re-releases. They're counting. Maybe. yeah. Now, domestically, it grossed. $25.5 million. That's, that's good. That's double its budget. Oh, yeah. And foreign, uh, this is his lowest foreign grossing film. If you're not counting following, I, I'm counting like wide release here. Yeah. Um, $14 million for a worldwide total of $39.7 million. And you know this, whenever we talk about budget, you also have to think about marketing. This movie really didn't have much of a marketing um mm -hmm. much of the marketing was homemade um john and chris made their own website they chris cut his own trailer and um it did go around to film festivals and they showed it to the movie big movie studio heads which loved it yeah but they were worried that it was going to be too confusing for people so it wouldn't like garner mass appeal enough for them to give it a very wide distribution of well over a thousand theaters right and I mean, I guess that makes sense for the higher ups in Hollywood to think that because if someone were to tell you how the story is laid out in this movie without telling you anything else, they would probably think it's going to be a very confusing movie. Now, this is his second lowest grossing film in the series, which once again, nobody has any idea who Christopher Nolan is. Mm. And I would argue that. No one only becomes a name people talk about or think about 
once Batman Begins becomes a hit. Yes. Now, this film was nominated for two Academy Awards. Which and is crazy to think about his second film. He's at the Oscars. It is crazy to think about because I believe it took Shyamalan three films to get yeah. there. And um, was Whiplash uh, Chazelle's second film? Yeah. This okay. guy, Madeline, was first. Yeah, so that's true. But he did. Christopher Nolan himself was at the Oscars nominated for Best Original Screenplay, which is ridiculous. Yes. And uh, he would have been 30 years old. Wow. At the so time. Young man. I mean, compared he to he was now. young. Yeah. And it was also nominated for. OK, Alan, can you guess the other nomination if you don't know already? Was it film editing? Yeah, I knew it. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. It makes sense considering how the movie is laid out, it makes sense why it would be a nomination for that. Yeah, Dottie Dorn got the nomination. Okay. He'll also edit uh, Insomnia, which we'll review next week. And he also edited together the Terminator 2 director's cut that you watched, Alan. Oh, did he? Yeah. Interesting. Um, he's done a couple other things I know, but the only one like people would really know is he did edit Ridley Scott's Kingdom of Heaven okay. in 2005. Gotcha. Uh, he also did edit the crappy Ben-Hur remake in 2016. Oh, I've seen that too. It, it is crappy, <laughs> actually. <laughs> so Christopher Nolan did not win for original screenplay. The nominees up for screenplay were Amelie, which I've seen. The editing is very good in that movie. A Monster's Ball. Hmm. Or excuse me, the writing is very good in that movie. Uh, Monsters Ball, The Royal Tenenbaums, which is, I believe, oh. a Wes Anderson film. Yeah, that is. That's one of his early ones. And Gosford Park. Okay. Who remembers Gosford Park? It won for writing, though. Huh, I don't think I've heard of that one. So for editing, A Beautiful Mind, which I mentioned would have gone to win Best Picture, was up for editing, Fellowship of the Ring, mm -hmm. Moulin Rogue. And this is going to be pretty crazy to a lot of people, but... Black Hawk Down beat this movie for editing. Really? Yes. <laughs> I don't know about that one. <laughs> oh, I wish you could see Ellen's face. It's so funny. <laughs> yeah, I've seen Black Hawk Down two or three times. Mm -hmm. I think it is a great movie, great Ridley Scott film, but for editing? Okay. Yeah, I'm with you. I remember I've only seen it once. I remember liking it, but... Yeah, the editing in this one definitely stands out more to me than that one would. Now, I do want to talk about real quick the definition for memento. Okay. Because I, that's not a word used very often, at least to my recollection, I don't hear people say it very often. Yeah. So according to Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, a memento is something that serves to warn or remind. And that perfectly fits in with this movie. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Um, the American Heritage Dictionary also classifies it as a hint, suggestion, notice, or memorial to awaken memory. That which reminds a reminder of what is past or of what is to come, specifically a souvenir. Now, as many of you are probably guessing, memento comes from the Latin verb uh, meminisse, that literally means to remember. Hmm. So there is a term in Latin called memento mori, which is John Nolan's short story which means a reminder of mortality. And that translates to English more so as remember that you must die. Right. So the history of memento makes it clear where its spelling came from because a memento often helps one remember a particular moment 
people occasionally spell the term momento with an O, such as moment, but they put an O at the end. Yep. And that, that second version is usually considered a misspelling, but it appears often enough in edited prose that it has been considered acceptable for entry in Webster's third New International Dictionary and the Oxford English Dictionary. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, like the because it's spelled M-E-M-E-N-T-O, which also kind of feels like it's also harkening on memory as well. Uh, yep. At least the root word of memory. So back in 1996, before Nolan had even started filming following, him and his brother were traveling across country to help Chris move to the West Coast when John pitched him the idea of the story we have now, at least a short story anyway. Yeah. So John went back to Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and the name of the killer that we have here in this story, John G., was inspired by his film teacher, John Glavin. Interesting. Now, <laughs> the killer is his teacher. <laughs> apparently, he was a really tough teacher, but a good one. Ah. So the brothers continued to work on the story, and Chris was somewhat inspired by the short story, Funes the Memorias, by Jorge Luis uh, Borges. And that is a story about a man who remembers everything and can't forget anything. Mm. But this is like the inversion of that. Right. So John published the story in Esquire magazine in March 2001. And originally, as I mentioned before, Brad Pitt was going to star, but there's scheduling issues. Now, I do want to call the listeners attention to this. We talked about this film and how it's edited. It's depicted out of order for the most part. Right. Now, reordering sequences was done to lasting acclaim with Pulp Fiction in 94. Okay. And before that, with Reservoir Dogs. And messing with subjective reality was later done to lasting acclaim with The Usual Suspects in 1995. So, while this film is original, it's not entirely original. And mind you, we are in the postmodern age where reality is no longer so black and white or black in color like this movie. Right. So I did mention it was at some film festivals in 2000. It got standing ovations and it did have trouble finding a distributor, but independent filmmaker, Steven Soderbergh, hey. does that name ring a bell? Yeah. <laughs> Steven Soderbergh, who here's a piece of trivia for you, was nominated for best director twice in the same year. Lucky man. <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, and he's like a huge experimental Oscar-nominated filmmaker. He did champion this film. He really wanted to help this film get out. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the weird things that they did for marketing, Chris and John did, was they sent out a Polaroid shot of Guy Pierce pointing to the point on his chest we see in this film. And they sent that out to random people. Yeah, that's interesting. It's creepy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they were hoping to kind of capture some of the viral marketing success that Blair Witch experienced. Ah, okay. And once the film was released on DVD, the menu, and remember, DVD was fairly new at this point. Right. The film, uh, the menu itself was set up as a psychological test. In order to navigate it, you had to figure out certain things. It wasn't just play movie. Yeah. You had to figure out the menu at, in order to play the movie, access special features, oh, 
And if you inputted the right combination in the menu, it would unlock the chronological uh, film. That's so interesting because DVD menus really aren't messed with that much. Uh, I would say maybe Disney's probably the bigger ones who actually make their DVD menus actually look like something of quality. I've never (laughs) really heard of that. Never really heard of a a film actually messing around with the DVD menu to a point where you, it's not as simple as play movie. I've never heard of that before. Apparently it was so obtuse in its understanding. It caused a lot of frustration. I mean, those who bought it, I believe it. (laughs) And the one thing that is very disappointing is this film has been released on Blu-ray a lot, Mm -hmm. lots of re-releases on Blu-ray, but the chronological cut has never been released on Blu-ray. It's only in that limited edition version of the, the DVD curses. Now, listeners, if you listened to last week, you'll know that Alan has seen this before, and you'll know that I have never seen this before. It is a movie everyone has seen but me, similar to Saving Private Ryan, everyone's seen it but me. And I've constantly heard about it, but I've never got the opportunity to see it. But I've just heard it's just mind-blowing, it's just incredible. Mm -hmm. You can't believe it, it's so amazing. So the hype was real, my expectations were high, but... I, I just went in with a blank slate. Thankfully, I hadn't seen any footage of this movie. I had seen a couple stills, but I didn't really know anything. So right. I think that's the best way to go into a movie. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so my initial thoughts when I watched uh, Memento, um, I kind of don't remember a lot about it. And that's mostly because when I had watched it, I was so tired that uh, oh, no. not a lot of it registered in my mind when I was what I was actually watching. And so I just found it a bit hard to follow as well. <laughs> so when I first watched it and I finished it, I was like, what? What was that? I was like, just so confused. That was so silly uh, how the movie was told. That's because, again, I was just so <laughs> tired. I not, not all of it had registered. So when I was coming back to this, it was, I remembered a couple of things. I remembered little pieces of the story, but it wasn't something that I remembered really anything about substantially. So it was almost, I guess, a uh, a, a new, I guess my first time watching it almost this time around, because again, I didn't remember liking it at all. Uh, so we'll see here in a little bit if my thoughts on it have changed since my college days. But yes, when I was in college and I first watched it, I remember not liking it. So will the trailer get you in to see this movie? If we would have been old enough back in 2001, I couldn't find a theatrical trailer, but uh, there was a trailer released after Inception. They cut a new one for the movie. That's all I could find. Uh, It's a garbage trailer. It's a garbage trailer. The one that I I found, I think it was theatrical. Really? Might. Mine said from the filmmaker of Inception, which made me think, no. <laughs> no, mine didn't say that. Mine didn't. Oh. Mine, mine looked to be like a theatrical, theatrical trailer. Uh, the one that I watched, I thought it was actually really good. It, it was, it correctly spoke what exactly the movie's about. But as of what the story is, it's kind of hard to say what it was because it's, it's rather obtuse in, in uh, communicating that, which I feel is, um, you know, on purpose it it really is one of those trailers that you know it doesn't give a lot away but makes it look very very intriguing and and the idea is there like the idea of the story is definitely communicated but as to what the story is they don't really communicate that which makes i thought to be a very intriguing trailer yeah that's good the problem with this trailer i saw is it completely misrepresents the tone of the film okay 
it makes it look like a run of the mill thriller. Uh, and I would not go see it in theaters if I saw this trailer. It also has very garbage music. It's, it's a terrible trailer and uh, I'm, I'm glad they didn't release this one uh, because I would, I would have waited to rent it. If there was such thing at the time streaming, I would have waited for for that because this just looks like a completely run of the mill early 2000s movie, which it's not. Right. Back in the day, I I mean, I think it would be something that would be interesting. I think it could be the trailer that I watched. It could be something like maybe a little bit hard to understand what exactly the story is. It is. It does look very interesting to me, though. So perhaps I would go see it if I was old enough to actually watch it. Apparently, um, Nolan cut the trailer himself. I was wondering that when I was watching it, because it doesn't feel like it was from a trailer house at all. Uh, It definitely felt like they had intentionally left out a lot of details story-wise to intrigue the audience instead of, you know, uh, giving a whole lot away, which happens now more than... Although, a few years ago, that was a a bigger thing where they would just essentially just tell the whole story in the trailer. Nowadays, they're kind of going back to... Uh, I guess this kind of style of film of trailer making where it's obtuse where what the story actually is, but it's intriguing enough to hopefully get you in the theater. Well, listeners, if you haven't seen Memento and you don't want the film spoiled for you, please don't spoil this film for yourself. Yes, you'll be doing yourself a disservice. It is as of this recording streaming free. That's right. Free. On IMDb TV, so as long as you have access to the internet, you can watch it for free. And uh, go ahead, watch the film, come back and click play, and we'll be ready to talk about it. Oh, and by the way, I am uh, so glad Alan uh, gave me the opportunity to uh, write the plot summary for this film. It was so easy. (laughs) Oh, I bet. I bet it was the easiest one. The easiest one, so straightforward. Five-year-old could write it. Unbelievable. Just kidding, it was super hard, but I'll do my best. (laughs) Leonard, played by Guy Pearce, is a man without a memory. He literally cannot remember what happened a few minutes ago. In order to cope with his handicap, he takes pictures of important people, like his friend Teddy, played by Joe Pantoliano, who is Cypher from The Matrix, and Natalie, played by Carrie Ann Moss, who is also Trinity from The Matrix, where he stays. Maybe, maybe Leonard is in The Matrix. Hmm. Mm. I don't know to find out in the sequel Matrix <laughs> Memento 2 The Matrix they are making a remake I know that <laughs> oh gosh we'll talk <laughs> about it yeah Leonard also has to take pictures of where he stays which is the discount inn and what he drives a Jaguar and in order to remember what is truly important that John G raped and murdered his wife he tattoos this across his body along with other things like license plate numbers a pyramid of basic daily routines and statements about the reality of his deceased wife. On the palm of his hand, he has written, Remember Sammy Jenkins, played by Stephen Tobolowski. Lenny does remember in his old life, he was an insurance investigator. Sammy was a man who experienced memory loss similar to Lenny. Sammy's wife hoped that their insurance would help them live, considering her husband was no longer capable of taking care of them. Unfortunately, Lenny believed Sammy should have been physically capable of creating new memories. Therefore, their claim was denied. Finally, Sammy's wife decided to give him one last test. See, ironically, Sammy could remember things like how to give his wife her insulin shot. He just couldn't keep track of time. She kept asking Sammy over and over again to give her the insulin, thinking if he truly loved her, then he would realize that he's killing her. Well, 
he didn't realize, and she went into a coma, which he never woke from. Lenny never forgot Sammy Jenkins, and decided he would bring order to his life, hence the tattoos, photographs, and notes. But Lenny is living only for one thing, and that's revenge. Over the course of about three days, Lenny repeatedly meets Teddy, who was the cop assigned to his wife's case. To help satiate Lenny's revenge, Teddy sets Lenny up to meet with Jimmy, who he tells him is the murderer of his wife. When Lenny murders Jimmy, but realizes this isn't the man, since he told him about Sammy Jenkins, this causes him to realize he's met him before. This tips Lenny off that Teddy is yanking his chain, which Teddy admits. In fact, Teddy spills that Lenny found the murderer of his wife a long time ago, and that he's stringing Lenny along for fun. He has no problem admitting this, because he knows Lenny won't remember in a few minutes. The bigger problem is, Lenny does remember to write down, don't believe his lies on Teddy's picture, and his license plate number, because Teddy's real name is in fact John G., John Edward Gamble. Instead of choosing to accept reality, Lenny furthers his delusional condition and decides to go on a wild goose chase, hunting down Teddy, who he immediately forgets is the John G. he is now after. Ditching his bloody clothes, Lenny swaps clothes with Jimmy and takes his car. In his coat pocket, he finds a coaster from a bar with a note written on it that says, meet me after... Natalie. He goes to the bar, finds Natalie, and she decides to take him in, despite knowing he likely knocked off Teddy, who happens to be her boyfriend. Natalie decides to use Jimmy to take out Dodd, who was a thug that's been hassling her over the money Jimmy was supposed to give to Teddy, except the money never exchanged hands because Lenny got in the way. Eventually, Lenny does get rid of Dodd, and in return, Natalie does help him by having her friend run the license plate number he got freshly tattooed on his thigh. The number, as we know, is registered to John Edward Gamble, a.k.a. John G., a.k.a. Teddy. Looking over the photograph of Teddy, which reads, Don't Believe His Lies, Natalie tells Lenny she knows a place where he could take Teddy. This place happens to be the same spot where he murdered Jimmy a few days ago. It's there that Lenny pulls his gun, ready to execute Jimmy, when Teddy offers to take a look in the basement, so Lenny can truly know who he is. But instead, Lenny shoots him in the head, which he snaps a photograph of as credits roll and the movie begins. So good job on the plot there. That actually makes it a little bit more easier to follow. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. There was no way I was going to be able to tell the plot. It's presented theatrically. Mm -hmm. I was going to have to tell it chronologically in order for it to have any sort of coherence like with me like reading it out right no yeah it makes perfect sense and i think the thing that whenever somebody explains this movie the one thing that they always say is that it's the story told in reverse which is already intriguing in itself and maybe is the reason why uh studio executives were like kind of wary on greenlighting it because telling saying that it is a story told in reverse uh immediately can be very very confusing to audiences who haven't seen it before or who haven't seen it at all. So yeah, this is probably the biggest thing about this story is how it's told. And that's in reverse. It's, it's something you never, I don't think I've ever heard of happening like in reverse. Totally. Um, there are bits and pieces that are told out of order that has been happening for eons in terms of filmmaking, but in terms of taking a story and flipping its timeline completely back around, I've never seen that or heard of that. Ebben, ebben, ever before no i haven't either i mean 
I could say that Citizen Kane is kind of told in reverse right. because it ends with him dying and then it kind of comes around full circle and we learn bits and pieces about his past through these different interviews and memories. And you know Christopher Nolan has seen Citizen Kane right. and <laughs> taken some inspiration from that, surely. But the, this movie is a complete enigma. It is a puzzle that has been scrambled about and it's being put together, but in the wrong order, like kind of smashing pieces together that aren't supposed to fit, mm -hmm. but you'll eventually have an understanding of the picture. You just won't quite know exactly what it is. So this is wildly original and the way it's constructed is on purpose to design the mystery and place us in the shoes of our protagonist. He can't remember a dang thing that's going on. Same with us. We don't know what's going on either because we haven't been shown those sections. So right. no one literally creates um, like a memory loss in the viewer. It, that's incredible. Yeah, it definitely helps us get into the shoes of our main character in ways that are, again, you. I don't think I've ever seen before because uh, because it's told backwards, you will sometimes, oftentimes, you'll just start like in the middle of of something in the scene. Like one a good example of this is he's just running all of a sudden. And yeah. he's like, wait, what am I running for? He's like looking around, like trying to figure out what what is going on, like where he is he at. And then he sees the character of Dodd coming after him and goes, oh, I'm chasing this guy. Uh, or yeah. no, he's chasing me. And so it's it does a really interesting job at always keeping you engaged because you don't know really where you are. Um, it just kind of plops you right in the middle of a scene or the beginning of a scene in some random place. And eventually it gets to the point where it's like, okay, well, this last scene uh, began with this and now we're ending with this. The, that Therefore, these two scenes are connected and you kind of get the groove as to, uh, about, I'd say about 10 or, 10 or so minutes in, how this movie's gonna be playing out where essentially every new scene is him waking up again, more or less, and him getting to the point of the end of the beginning of the last scene that we were in. It kind of makes you your brain go in overdrive trying to remember, okay, this is the <laughs> this is how this movie is laid out. I think yeah. it's very, very interesting for a movie to do that. Again, never seen it before in my in my life. And I don't think really anybody's tried to uh capture that either as well, because it, in all intents and purposes, this should not work. But it I think it does and a very, very good job at that. And it thankfully does, I would say, work. Also, because once you do watch this film chronologically, you'll see it's a basic story, mm -hmm. but the editing structure is what makes it so brilliant. And the key to, I would say, understanding the original editing structure is there are kind of two different timelines we witness. The black and white stuff all takes place first and it's told in chronological order. The color sequences are what take place from middle to end and they are told in reverse order so right the very first scene is of the movie the very first scene is the end of the film right yeah it's is the really end cool. of the story i should say it's really cool too because you get to see how he's shaking the polaroid um yeah. and it's instead of fading you know back in. in and filling in it's going the opposite way where it's it's fading away as he's shaking it and then uh, you kind of begin to realize that oh wait this is going in reverse and then you see him uh grabbing the gun that he just threw away and then shooting John G. Um, and so it shows us right at the very beginning that this story is not going to be told to us in the traditional fashion. Uh, and it's going to be our main character trying to piece together the events that have led up to this moment that we just saw. And 
watch it, witnessing the beginning, I couldn't help but think of Nolan's new film, Tenant, where we see things like going in reverse, but still going forwards. Right. And I'm like, oh, I can see where he's like getting some ideas from. Like, and that just makes me really excited. I thought the opening oh, yeah. was um, brilliant as well, trying to figure out. We're looking at this like horrible, bloody picture. It looks like it's something out of Silent Hill 2. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, what's going on here? And it all occurs in reverse. And uh, I didn't pick up on the structure per se at first time around. It only took me. I did watch the film chronologically. And then I watched an interview with Nolan where he's like standing at a chalkboard. And he's like, the film isn't linear. The film is a hairpin where the black and white curves in on the color. Yeah. And then they all come and meet together in the middle uh, together. I'm like, oh, man. Yeah. That's amazing like, to think of a story structure like that. Yeah. And we have noted before that following did this and then films later on would still continue to play with with uh, with re well, not reality, but like it's time. Right. It would always a lot of his films tend to play with the structure of of his timeline. And this is one where he, I think, kind of really pushes for that. Because in the following, it was there, but we kind of noted that some of the story and how it was told was a little bit muddy. And this one, you're right, it's more of a basic thriller, murder, murder mystery, but because of the main character and them taking that story and flipping it upside down, that's what makes it interesting is, again, kind of what with following where you're trying to keep a track of, you know, what part of the story, what time were we in? This is the same thing, but this time... While there is so a basic story behind it that's rather easy to follow when you go back and think about it, the way that they go about that and having the, those loops over and over and over again inter intertwined with the black and white segments that is forward in time, they do a very good job at that and making it wildly interesting to watch. Now, as far as this being based off the short story by his younger brother, the short story could almost in some ways be seen as a prequel. It's not. But in the short story... Lenny, his name is Earl, okay. and he is in a mental hospital, and it just, the story begins with him waking up and reading notes, and he can't remember anything except the notes he's written himself, Right, and he knows for certain um, that his wife, he does do the tattoo thing as well, and he knows that his wife has been um, murdered, so then he makes a plan to escape from the mental hospital in the middle of the night, and find his wife's murderer and ensure that he can write it down. So, and then he'll retire back to the mental institution with the brief satisfaction of having a note written down that his wife's murderer is dead and she's been avenged. Right. And it all becomes very muddy towards the end of the story because he, he also somehow knows the face of the murderer. At least he thinks so. And he tattoos that face onto his chest. Okay. So he does murder somebody in the end, um, but he can't realize if he gets caught and arrested for it or if a cab is just taking him away. And then he frantically struggles to find a pen to write down that he has achieved his goal. Yeah. And so that's kind of the dark twist at the end is he doesn't get the pen. And then he comes to the conclusion that life is just a cheap parlor trick where we have moments of genius, but ultimately the that light fades from everybody and we just kind of go back to being pointless schlubs, it seems like. Interesting. That's an interesting twist for it to have. Yeah, and you can tell that story in this film are 
have a similar goal, but the story is very different. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things I do want to talk about is the main character's condition. Uh, that being interrogate amnesia is what it's called. Uh, this is a real thing. Uh, it's not very um, popular. It's rather rare for the, these cases to come up. But interrogate amnesia is a reality where making new memories just doesn't happen. Uh, and this, for the, our main character, and for most cases, it's the short-term memory does not grab what has been just been made and launch it into long-term memory. It just kind of goes into short-term and then just disappears when they when the subject uh, is focusing on one thing and then moves away to something else and they lose track of that last thing and they just completely, it's just it's gone. So I know I learned in psychology that there was a case of a guy named H.M., who this happened to him. I think I think it's the same case, but there was also another case where a man was in, uh, he was in World War II, I believe. And after World War II, he was a heavy alcoholic. And then suddenly one day it just snapped and he just completely lost everything for the last like 30 years. Um, and he oh, was wow. stuck in World War II. And they kind of figured out that maybe that was because of his alcoholism. They do bring this up in the story too, in the movie. Um, uh, so it's an interesting concept and it's one that I would assume they would just take that idea of amnesia and just do go complete Hollywood on it. But they do a very, as far as I can tell, a rather good job at making the interrogate amnesia more of how it's actually like in real life. I think it's very, very interesting. That is one thing I like about this film and seemingly Nolan's other films to come mm -hmm. is he tries to keep them in reality as, as much as possible. While right. still creating an entertaining story. Now, I think this also calls into question while Lenny does have a like a physically mental condition. It also calls into question he's still a person with free will. Yep. And with motives. And one of there's like a ton of telling lines here um, between him and Teddy, especially because Teddy tells him, I guess I can only make you remember the things you want to be true. And also later on, Lenny's questioning who tore out the 12 pages of the police report. And Teddy says, you did that to create a puzzle you can never solve. Right. So we can see here that while Lenny does have a condition, he would rather live a lie than face the truth. That's what that's what I would say, because uh, he admits he's only living for revenge and uh, he questions, do I lie to myself to be happy? And he says, in your case, Teddy, yes, I will. I mean, that that's like the writing in this movie is just incredible. Yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of sad to think about because he will never be able to, I guess, because his goal, as he says at one point in the movie, is he wants to feel that satisfaction or I think it's stated at one point. He wants to feel the satisfaction of finally getting revenge for his wife's death. And that does actually happen, but it's something that we never see. And I like that we never see it because it to him, it never really happened because while the killer is dead, you know, he still is missing that satisfaction of finally getting that revenge. And so we never get to see it and he never really remembers it. So it's an interesting concept for him to just continue in this loop where he just kind of keeps going around trying to find his wife's killer and eventually Teddy, also known as John G, just kind of interjects and says, well, I can use him uh, to get money for him and myself. And because of that, 
we get the story that we have here where instead of him looking for his wife's killer, he's looking for the man who did him wrong. Um, and I think that's also interesting all in, a, in, in and of itself, finding, I guess, giving some kind of credence to this man who has a condition who has been just been taken advantage of. And now he's able to finally rectify or rectify that situation, at least to himself. It's kind of hard to say if that'll be something that he will live with because he only has a photograph, so he'll never be actually be able to, uh, I guess, feel the satisfaction. But it is something that I think, again, it drives the story. So it finds, I find it to be wildly interesting. It also sets up a dichotomy that I think everybody can relate to. Mm -hmm. And the dichotomy in this character is he really wants to heal. Yeah. At the beginning of his memory, at the beginning of his phase, I guess, he seems to want to heal. And there's this very poignant line where he's laying in bed awake um, with Natalie and he says, how am I supposed to heal if I can't feel time? Right. And I thought, oh man, that is so powerful because it is true. We do need time to heal. And if he is just reliving the same thing over and over again, he'll never be able to heal. So he seemingly resorts to more of these like carnal is instincts of revenge. Yeah. More of the, you know, primal nature of man is I'm just going to get revenge and hopefully that will be a case in which I'm able to heal. We know he's gotten revenge multiple times. Yes. And it never works. And um, it he's also burned his wife's stuff multiple times and that doesn't work either. And it seems to me that he is kind of this walking conundrum because ultimately he realizes that if he can't heal, then he needs a purpose. And the only purpose he can do is continually find his wife's killer and murder her. And so while he does seem sympathetic, he's also very bloodthirsty. Yeah. And this is where we realize our protagonist is actually a villain as well, because he is purposely, he knows Teddy is tricking him, but he's purposely going to use him in order to satiate uh, his revenge and create a new purpose in his life, which is such a dark thing once you realize it. Yeah, it's it's also interesting because he's just kind of stuck in this endless loop for, I guess, the remainder of his life because he always needs to find the killer and eventually he finally changes that a little bit till he, moves, till he moves towards Teddy and more or less puts the blame on Teddy. Teddy is the guy who killed and raped my wife. That's not really true, but he makes it he believes his own lie, more or less, to that way he can finally get revenge for the man who has taken advantage of him before. So his entire life is him just like living in this spiral that just continually goes and goes and goes and he just can't get out of because he doesn't know any better. He will immediately forget the next thing within a few minutes. And that's just how he lives his life. It's very interesting that it decides to go down this route, but again, wildly interesting. And as I was, yeah, exactly. And as I was saying, he is sympathetic because as you're saying, he keeps getting used over and over again by these people. Right. But he's also using these people as well mm -hmm. to create this little, it's almost like a real life video game. It's like this really sick scenario where he's like, okay, I'm the player and you're the side characters that I get to hunt down and kill now. And I don't, and he also doesn't have to live with any of the consequences. Right. Because he's just going to forget. And he always, always begins a sympathetic like what have i done like i wouldn't i wouldn't do that right but then as his memory like further progresses on 
he realizes that, yeah, I will do that. And once again, I was trying to call that back to that's kind of like the dichotomy in all of us is do we turn the other cheek or do we just slug the other person? Right. <laughs> and that's exactly what he set up with as well. The one thing that I'm really grateful for this movie doesn't go with is ultimately coming down on the claim that reality is subjective and that uh, Lenny Lenny's subjective reality is just as true for him as it would be for anybody else, their own truth or their own reality. Mm -hmm. Because the film makes us very clear that reality is objective, especially in his ending monologue where he says that I have to believe my actions still have meaning even if I can't remember them. And he's talking about everybody still has to look in the mirror to remind themselves who they are which comes down on the side that reality is very concrete despite him choosing to live this subjective scenario. Right. Exactly. Alan, I didn't get to ask, did you get to watch this chronologically? I did not. Um, I was not able to watch it chronologically, but I would love to watch it chronologically. But this is also one that I've heard is just better in its original form, but it is still, I'd say worth your time watching chronologically. I haven't seen it. I do really want to see it, but that's what I've heard. Yeah, don't don't watch it chronologically if you haven't seen the original mm. version, uh, because that'll that'll just ruin it for you, I would say. So the chronological one, I did watch it. It helps you to realize the whole picture from beginning to end. And I would say it also helps provide a clear sense of time. Whereas in the original, I'm not sure if Lenny's been living with Natalie for a while or when he met Teddy or how long he's been staying at the discount inn. Um. That helps us leave us with a loss of time like Lenny's experiencing. Um, there is some very positive points about watching it chronologically, though, because it's kind of like being in on a sick joke. Yeah. So Lenny sets up the plot and he forgets he set up his own plot. Hmm. So we know because in the beginning, he sets up his wild goose chase of hunting down Teddy. By purposefully writing down his license plate number, he says... Oh, wait, you're a John G. I'm going to hunt you down next. Yeah. So, but he never remembers that, but we know what he's working towards his whole, his whole time. And we get to also see how he's purposefully used by people. And this is something I didn't catch the first time. Natalie says, I'm going to use you. And I'm telling you right now, um, just so, uh, I'll be able to enjoy it more. And, uh, Watching it chronologically does make it into a much leaner story and a lot of the emotion is missing, I would say. Okay, I mean, that makes sense too because I think the whole point or one of the whole points of making the story structured like this is to help the audience get into the shoes of our main character and understand, you know, kind of the situation that he is currently in, right? The movie is mm -hmm. him, essentially him just replaying all of these events to himself, maybe even reading, looking over his pictures, reading what he's done, things like that. To a point where he finally gets to where the roots of this entire escapade begins, which is him finding out that John G has uh, been playing him this whole time. So I think it does a wildly good job at getting us into the mindset of our main character and understanding the frustrations that he has when he just loses focus on something and has to basically start from scratch again. So yeah, I could see definitely why the chronological cut would essentially just take that and remove it completely because like you said, it sounds like we're in on a sick joke at that point. We know 
uh, it's it's hard for us to understand, at least because of how this is edited, how our main character is feeling and, and understand his plight, whether, and whereas in the chronological cut, I feel like it'd be very hard to capture that. It would be, I think the one thing the chronological cut at least helps you appreciate further about the out of order cut is there is a very frightening symmetry to the entire story. Okay. And for instance, in the beginning of the original version, he says, let's go down to the basement. Then you'll know who you truly are. That is such a frightening opening line to me because that sets my imagination off on some scary David Fincher seven type movie. Like who is this guy? Like, can we trust him? Because he, he just murdered this guy, but then he also comes across as sympathetic and, um, Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's the ending line of the movie, but yeah. technically the beginning, depending on how you look at right. it. <laughs> um, you'll also notice that everyone's name is almost the same. We've got Lenny, Teddy, Sammy, Jimmy, Natalie. Yeah, they all end with E. Yeah, yeah, with that E-Y sound, mm-hmm. um, which I think this is also what makes the movie so brilliant is having the kind of the very end of it is technically the very middle of the movie right like the crux of it i would say the crux of the story as christopher nolan kind of draws it like a horseshoe shape where he sees it all comes together in the middle Mm. so then you're able at that point once everything comes together in the middle you're able to see the symmetry of it all how uh how the plot has been set up how everybody's been using each other but then at the same time Lenny's letting himself be used and using others as well. And uh, that's why I think having that everything meet in the middle works so well. Yeah, yeah. I would say that if this wasn't edited as well as it is now, this would be impossible to follow. Same with the writing. If it wasn't written as well as it as it is here, this would have been a story that would be impossible to follow because of the idea that they're going for. You have to know how to tell a story backwards like that and make it, easy for the audience to understand. And I got to say Guy Pierce's look like his tattooed body mm. that's iconic at this oh, point. Oh yeah. Yeah, it absolutely is. The other thing that I really love particularly about the original cut is the way the characters move in and out of each scene mm-hmm. is I would say it's Hitchcockian. Yeah. It's it's this very much feels like a movie Hitchcock would do but at that time, Hitchcock would have never thought to edit a movie in such this way. Mm-hmm. And I think we also have to lend a lot of credence to this being a postmodern film as well. The editing as well, where uh, reality is called more into question. There is a subjective reality to the main character. Those are all of the color sequences, whereas the black and white sequences are told through objective reality. Mm-hmm through how the world is affecting him, not how he's affecting the world. And the reason Christopher Nolan did do it in black and white is because he wanted those to feel more like kind of a police procedural, kind of like an interview type thing. Right. Where information, he's like freely giving up information and that's being extracted from him. And that's, and we're being told also the story of Sammy Jenkins, whereas the color scenes uh, we're just as lost as he are. We're trying to figure everything out just right. like he is. Right. Yeah, those black and white scenes do a good job at setting up how he lives his life in the beginning and then kind of telling the story and put, filling in the pieces 
that we're missing here in the color sequences as well. But yeah, you are right. And in some ways, this reminds me a lot of following because following is very neo-noir-esque. And this has got some of those vibes to it, especially in those black and white scenes where he's pretty much on the phone the whole time. And it's like you said, a police uh, a police hearing. But there, I do see some similarities between this and following. Although I feel that this memento is definitely taking the idea of following and that's the nonlinear plot structure. And then maturing that in a way that makes it uh, very, very intriguing. I think that there is definitely a similarity between those two movies. And there is, especially because the technically the opening of following is the end of the movie. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Where he's being interviewed by the police. You don't know what's going to happen. I honestly thought Christopher Nolan was just going to like forget all about that at the end. But no, he he knew what he was doing. Yeah. Oh, he knows what he's doing. <laughs> um. One of the things that I should mention real quick is that I guess I forgot to mention earlier is the way the chronological film also helps us experience it emotionally is because we don't have the connection with the characters. Whereas if you watch it chronologically, you'll have, you'll know all of the character motivations up front. Whereas watching it out of order, all of their motivations are concealed until towards the end of the movie where it all comes into focus. Um, for instance, there's a scene where Natalie says, will you remember me next time after they've gotten out of bed together, which makes me think they slept together, right. which you know they ultimately didn't. And she kisses him very tenderly. Yeah. Even though watching it chronologically, you know she's using him. And he says, I won't remember you. And she says, I think you will. That serves to manipulate us originally, thinking they have some kind of romantic connection. Yeah. Watching it chronologically, it's meaningless because nothing ever follows through with that. Mm. And you know that he doesn't remember her and doesn't care for her and she doesn't care for him. That's interesting. Yeah, I guess that's true. The character motivations would be different. Yeah. That is interesting. Now I really want to watch this chronological cut. I just want to see what it's like. It does help understand things a lot better yeah. as well. For instance... T for me, Teddy's role in this movie is actually the biggest mystery. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, because we start off knowing he's dead, but I can never figure out if he's the murderer or if he's a tricky cop or what. Right. And we openly see him play both sides um, because he's pretending to be a cop and a snitch. And... You also understand watching it chronologically why he wants to get Teddy out of town and why he keeps saying, we should trade cars. Let me drive your car. Yeah. Because that's not Lenny's car and he's going to get caught so, so much easier that way. Um, and you can, I, I will say watching it in the original order though, does kind of feel like Natalie's plot is kind of meaningless and especially even further the Dodd subplot feels pointless as well. Yeah, that's one of the things I noted when watching it this time is Natalie, I would have liked for her to play, I guess, more into the story um, because she's kind of a mystery as to why she's here for a good chunk of the runtime until the very, very end. Um, and so I would have liked for her character, I guess, to play more of a prominent role in the story. But Again, she's not really like um, one of the main characters really until the until we find out what her motivation actually is there towards the end. 
There's one scene that I think would be important to talk about as well is what I call the second man scenario. Mm -hmm. So in Lenny's mind, he sees two guys, both have white masks on, but if you'll notice, one has a baseball hat on. Right. So maybe there was a second man, but this nevertheless gives Lenny an endless opportunity to chase the one that got away. Right. So... I personally doubt there was actually a second man in his house attacking his wife. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, there, It very well could go down that route of the second man is maybe something that he made up himself. Um, maybe it could have been something that he made up when he was thrown against the, uh, the mirror to make sense of the whole situation. But yeah. I found that to be very interesting that he keeps bringing up there has to be a second man. The police weren't even looking for the second man, but that's the only explanation why this all occurred. Right. And I think an even greater twist as well, as well is when you realize that his wife wasn't raped and murdered. She was raped and, and beaten up and tried to be murdered. Right. But she lived. And my dad and I had some debate about this as to the role of Sammy Jenkins. Because I believe Sammy Jenkins was a real person. He didn't have a wife and he was faking his memory condition. Right. But Lenny has supplanted and backfilled all of his memories. He can remember his wife had diabetes and he's the one that killed her. He's just living in denial and supplanted those onto a man he knew named Sammy Jenkins. Right. I know oftentimes when the brain is given a situation that doesn't make sense to it it'll try to fill in and try to make sense of that situation so yes. it very well could be that he does in some way remember what happened to his wife but it's not like he actively remembers like, like it was him instead he's filling that in with sammy's story um that is somewhat related but is not actually what happened to him instead what happens to what we are told what happens to sammy that from the main character is actually what he did to his wife, which I think is haunting as well, because oh. you get to see that same situation play out with these two, this older couple, but you find out later on that that same situation basically happened to our main character and his wife. Uh, it just wasn't Sammy. Like we were told. It, watching this movie also made me realize that shutter Island isn't very original. Yeah, no, I felt shutter Island vibes all over this when I was watching it this time. There is definitely, uh, maybe it, it, it feels def very close to the plot of Shutter Island in a lot of ways. And I also, in my article, you should go read it at silverscreenguide.wordpress.com. I also drew connections between Silent Hill 2 and Shutter Island. And I'm like, wait a minute, Shutter Island just drawing ideas from, <laughs> from all these other <laughs> Shutter movies. Island. Wait a second. Wait a second. Uh, yeah. Hmm. The one I I was left with two unsolved questions in this movie. The first question is probably trivial; doesn't matter. Yeah. Maybe why are there two scratches on his left cheek? Oh, uh, that would be when he was fighting Jimmy. I think yeah, Jimmy, and he slaps him, and that's where the two scratches come from at the very end. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. hmm. I never noticed that. Also, where does Lenny get the name John G in the first place? Either that really was, I mean, G, there's no last name to G. So here's my guess. Here's my guess. 
likely since this is Teddy's name and he was the cop assigned to the case, he gave John G to Lenny since it was a common name that would create endless wild goose chases for Lenny to go on. Maybe. Yeah. That's my guess. Yeah. I mean, that, that would make sense given the ending that we have, or I guess the beginning technically, uh, where we find out that, uh, Teddy, uh, is setting up our main character to run off this in this case. And, and this story, he's running off on this case to get some money out of it. So, there is a very weird mystery to the end of the movie, actually. So it's when he recalls a memory before his wife died and she's tracing her finger around his left pectoral muscle. Yeah. And you'll notice he doesn't have a tattoo there for the whole movie. But in this memory he has, uh, it says, I've done it. There is a tattoo that says, I've done it. And his wife is tracing that. Which causes me to think that deep down inside, he knows that he's the one that got rid of his wife and he suppressed that, but it has subconsciously surfaced in his mind in the form of one of his tattoos. Mm, yeah. You'll also notice that the Polaroid picture of him pointing to the same spot on his left peck and there's nothing there. Either he got that tattoo removed Either he did um, get he got after he uh, put his wife into a diabetic coma and she passed away. Either he got a tattoo that said "I've done it" to remind himself, and then it's very possible he actually could have gotten that tattoo removed with the help of Teddy, and they could have partnered up to go on their sick little, you know, detective spree. Maybe yeah, because I know that it is brought up at least once or twice that spot on his chest. I know Natalie brings it up, I think once. And mm. then there's, I think one or time where he like is, has touched it at some point, but yeah, that, that, I think that very well might be the, uh, might be what happened is he did, did tattoo over it. I've done it, but then maybe later on after the, after he was looking at it and maybe looking through some of the evidence he had, he didn't believe that that was true. And so he removed it and thus ends up the, the, uh, the, in the cycle that we have. And he's, yeah, and you're right. And he is faced with the truth. Yeah. Because Teddy says, you're the one that wife had diabetes. You're the one that put her into a coma. Sammy Jenkins was a fraud. And at this point, Lenny seems to be so far divorced from the truth mm -hmm. that he's not going to believe even the truth. And at that point, also, it's important to note that Teddy has sunk himself into such a hole that he is going to be Lenny's next target, but he's so blase about it. It's true. Uh, with his life and with um, using this man in such a way that Lenny's just not going to believe anyone, which becomes very dangerous that now Lenny becomes the basis for his own truth and right. reality, right. which he has none. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, it, it does kind of remind me of that Jack Nicholson line, the truth, you can't handle the truth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In, in which he can't, he can't yeah. handle the truth, which is weird because in the very end of the movie, and he repeats these lines a few times, which is something I love how lines are repeated throughout the movie. Yeah. And certain certain scenes um, kind of overlap onto each other. Like I just mentioned, there's the pic, there's the image of his... Um, wife laying on his chest tracing uh his peck yeah and then there's also that scene where he's laying up in bed with natalie at night and she's in the same position as his wife mm -hmm. and it all kind of i love that how 
all of the imagery in the film folds in on itself yeah. together. Yeah. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah. One of, so one of the things, I guess, uh, criticisms that I have, it's rather small because it only happens like a couple of times and it really isn't that big of a deal. Some of the action in this movie, I don't think is filmed very well. Uh, there are a lot of cuts that happen. Again, it's not like anything too big of a deal because there is so little action. This is very much more of a drama, but there are a couple of moments where the action that is filmed is like, eh, doesn't look too great. Uh, but of course, I mean, he would go on to make it, make that much better. But in this movie, I felt that that was one of the criticisms I had is how the action is filmed in a couple of scenes. Yeah. The other, I had an editing criticism as well. And that is uh, how the transitions are handled. The fade to blacks. Oh, it yeah. kind of felt a little clunky. Yeah. I didn't mind that nearly as much. Uh, I think that that one helps uh, get us into the mindset of him like falling asleep and waking up with air quotes because he does wake up multiple times a day. So I felt that I didn't feel that as a criticism myself. Yeah, I guess my thing is they just looked clunky. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's fair. If that was is if that was the software they were using at the time or what they were doing, but hey, maybe that's just to the time. You know, you you also don't see many fade to blacks in the middle of a movie. Like I don't think I've ever no. seen that hardly ever. Well, we saw it in Mad Max. Yeah, very very uh, seldom is it actually showed up. But yeah, Mad Max is one of them. Um, it wasn't good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let me think here. Sometimes if there's like an intermission in like a really old film that they'll fade to black. But yeah, you don't see it, especially this constant of a use. You don't see that very often ever. Yeah. And I do. I mean, I think they're necessary. I think oh, yeah. I just have an issue with how they look. And there's, you, you mentioned there's not a lot of action in this scene. Um, I really like that for the most part, he uses a lot of still shots or tracking shots. Mm. I felt a little nauseated with the opening shots of following. A lot of those handheld shots were yeah. super shaky. Yeah, there are a lot of handheld shots with that one. Yeah, and I mean, he does go handheld a couple times, but I'd say yep. to great purpose, such as when Natalie comes back into the room mm -hmm. after tricking um, him with his memory and saying like, Dodd beat me up even though he's the one that hit her. Right. And that just lends to more so the intensity of the film. Right. There also are some great um, inner quick cuts, though, where he has flashbacks to um, the night of his wife uh, being attacked. That's true. Yeah, those are... They scared me. <laughs> yeah, those are rather constant, too. And yeah, they do serve a lot of purpose to the story. They did remind me a lot, actually, of Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation. Okay don't watch the end of that movie when you're tired because <laughs> there are those quick cut intercuts of attack, which are very similar, like of suffocation. Oh my gosh, that scared me yeah. so bad <laughs> when I was watching that movie. Oh, uh, but you could tell Nolan loves cinema and he is drawing from great pieces of, of cinematic storytelling yeah. and he's making them his own. Yeah. Which is, we kind of mentioned this earlier. This is, Crazy to think that this original of a story comes out of a director who, this is really only his second time making a feature-length film. He's made a bunch of shorts at this point, and I've seen Doodlebug, which is, I think, his third short, uh, yeah. the third one that he publicly released. But yeah, you, this is very rare to see a movie like this come out of a very uh, young director. 
Oh, it's incredibly rare. And it made me so happy to watch a film this original. I'm like, yeah, gosh, when was the last time I saw a movie this original? Like nothing feels this original anymore. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is a breath of fresh air, even though it's been almost 20 years since it was released. One of the other, I'd say, great lines of this movie that kind of sums up the worldview, kind of the philosophy behind it is when he says the world doesn't disappear just because you close your eyes. Mm hmm. And to me, that signifies that there is a concrete reality to the world. Right. Yeah. And not just him. He is. He knows for a fact there is a concrete reality and it's not because if you don't have a memory, you could be swayed by anything. You could believe anything. Oh, yeah. It seems like. But nevertheless, him finalizing on that towards the very end of the movie. I love the final end of this movie where he's driving to the tattoo parlor mm -hmm. and he's driving in the car and he's looking at the glass and he's like, everybody has to look in a mirror. And he says, the world doesn't just appear, disappear when you close your eyes. And he said that in an earlier scene of the movie as well. Yeah. I don't know. I'd say that's just a great ending to the movie. Oh yeah. yeah. Which is actually the middle of it sort of, or the right. beginning. Yeah. What well, definitely my favorite line. We were, you, I think you already mentioned earlier. My favorite line in this entire movie is I can't feel time. Yeah, I love that line because I think that really sums up what exactly his thoughts are uh, living the life that he is essentially forced to live. You know, he can't feel himself learning anything because he isn't learning anything. I think it really puts into perspective his uh, what kind of situation that he's in. That was getting close to the level of the uh, all these moments will be lost in time like tears and rain. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, which they're both very similar in that capacity. Mm -hmm. Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for Memento? So I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast that when I first watched Memento when I was in college, I remember not liking it very much. Uh, well, I mean, that was also because I was very, very tired and didn't really understand what I was watching. Nowadays, now that I have actually had time to watch it and understand what I'm watching, I can say that my initial thoughts, this movie don't make any sense because I absolutely adore this movie. And that's because it, I mentioned this a second ago, it feels like a breath of fresh air, even though it is 20 something years or getting close to 20 years old at this point. It's a movie that I would love to return to and love to own on Blu-ray at some point because of how fresh this story feels to me, taking what is in some ways a very generic thriller murder mystery story and then turning it on its head so Finding it that finding that the story that is being told and how it's told is the most important part of this, and that makes it so wildly interesting because you're just constantly engaged trying to figure out at what point in the story you're in, what's happening, remembering what happened just a second ago, and what's going to happen next, after, what's going to happen after this, how it leads up to this. Your your brain is constantly engaged, and I absolutely love that because you are figuring out the story along with the main character. And you're in the main, you're essentially the, you are essentially the main character. You're in his shoes. You get to understand why, uh, how he feels given the situation that he's put under. So yeah, I absolutely adore Memento and I will definitely return to it. It's a movie that I wish I would have watched much earlier. Uh, so yeah, this, this is definitely a 10 out of 10 for me. I can't believe this is from a filmmaker who is only made one other film at this point. This would feel like it would be something from a very experienced one. And anyways, nonetheless, a movie I absolutely adore now. Uh, 10 out of 10, uh, definitely going to be a very high recommend for me. Memento is a masterclass postmodern Hitchcockian thriller. 
where Hitchcock is the master of mystery and would have kept vital information from his main character and from us, such as with Cary Grant in North by Northwest, in order to draw us into the mystery. Nolan, on the other hand, decides to toy with the fabric of reality itself. That's a whole new ballpark in cinematic storytelling. I can't remember the last time I was this pulled into a film, nor had this much fun experiencing a fresh, unique story. It kept me guessing the entire time. I had no clue which way Memento would go. And this is Nolan's greatest achievement with this film. Rarely can a director place us in the shoes of the protagonist to such a degree that we are as confused as he is. And thanks to great editing, this works so well. Little by little, it was a treat to unravel the mystery. And Nolan doesn't cheat. We come to character conclusions along with Lenny. But where Lenny and Nolan's worldview diverge is when Lenny at the end, or beginning actually, decides to purposely fabricate reality so he can live a lie rather than face the truth. And this is fascinating because moments later, he admits the objectivity of reality. Lenny living his truth leads to destruction of humanity and the soul. What's even further ironic is that Teddy is stringing Lenny along, and Teddy tells him, so what if you lie to yourself so you can be happy? We all do it. Once again, no one shows this worldview doesn't lead to happiness, but rather to destruction. I can't wait to re-experience the twisted mystery of this film again. Memento receives 9 stars out of 10, with my highest recommendation. I nearly gave this a 10 out of 10, but I want to rewatch once more in the mixed up order before I give it that rating. The story is a 10 out of 10, but as a package, I'm holding off. That's fair. <laughs> and as I should mention, will I pick up or pass on this title? Well, it should be no surprise. I will absolutely pick this up as soon as I can. But I do wish there was a Blu-ray with the hidden Easter egg chronological order on it. I'm right with you. I'm right there with you too. I would. I'm definitely going to be picking this up at very in the very near future. Um, but yes, I would love to experience the chronological order on the disc. But it sounds like that's kind of hard to get your hands on. That's not a Blu-ray. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I the way I watched it chronologically is very simple. <laughs> I just typed in Memento chronological. And a fan re-edited the movie ah. into chronological, and that that was on uh, Vimeo, okay. I believe. Don't, it's, it's easy to find. Yeah, it's not official though, quote unquote. Right, right. So I don't think there's a criterion of this, and I'm pretty sure the reason why is because AMBI Pictures acquired the rights, and now they're going to remake this movie. That's true. They was announced, I think, a couple years ago. Um, Late 2015. Yeah, they announced it. Yeah, that they were going to be doing a remake. I haven't really heard much since then. Uh, nope. Other than that, they are planning to make a remake. That'll be interesting to see how they pull that off. Because um, this is very much a story that I feel is best left just leaving it alone and not making a remake out of it so oh yeah I, it sounds like a truly awful idea yeah. i mean it's just like hey let's remake alien let's remake citizen kane mm -hmm. let's not <laughs> yeah please let's no. <laughs> not go there it's already been done right it's it's just going to come across as a cheap imitation it's like when gus van zant remade psycho shot for shot Ah, yeah yeah with uh what's his name Vince Vaughn. Yes, Vince Vaughn. Yeah, as uh, <laughs> as the main character or the oh man, what's his name? 
Listeners, we have reviewed Psycho. If you want to know our thoughts, you can listen to it there. Anyways, um, yeah. Apparently, their spokesperson said they plan to stay true to Christopher Nolan's vision and deliver a memorable movie that is every bit as edgy, iconic, and award-worthy as the original. Yeah, but don't they always say that? Yeah. It's a terrible idea. Yeah, it's a zero out of ten for me. Oh, Already, you've already heard our review of 2025's Memento. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I just think remakes in general are usually an awful idea unless you're doing something, you know, completely different. Yeah, there just needs to be a good reason for there to be a remake. I don't see a good reason for Memento to be remade. Yeah, I mean, like, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory are the same story, but very different. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways... That was five. That was five years ago when this was announced. I remember everybody was like, "Well, this is the stupidest idea we've ever heard." And I hadn't seen Memento at the time, but I'm like, "This sounds like a bad idea." Yeah. And very shocking because the movie Memento's not even twenty years old yet. Right. It's it's that is I've never heard of a movie being re- remade that early. Right. Yeah. It is pretty. Yeah. It is really early in its life. Still, I don't know. I I honestly never tracked with nolan except for whenever the batman movies came out and i'm like oh yeah you made the prestige and oh interstellar that looks cool yep. and i think he did some stuff before those i don't know and eh, dunkirk yeah he might get best director for dunkirk i don't know mm-hmm. hmm. that, that's been my thought process yeah. but yeah now starting from the beginning i am very much like tuned into his career and seeing how it all progresses and i've so much more respect for him because he is such a especially back then a young talented filmmaker oh, yeah. that he's just like not about the money because he's using very low budgets and they don't make a lot these movies we've talked about it's just all about the love of storytelling for him well alan thanks for joining me sure thing all right listeners i'm curious to know what you thought of memento right down below in the comment section your very first experience watching this film uh, I think this is just one of those movies you don't forget your first time watching it and the way it affected you. Because like Alan said, even though he was sleepy, he still remembers watching this movie. And so I'm curious to see what everybody else's first time story is as well. So that's the question after the show. Listeners, I'm excited to come to next week's because I remember seeing the movie with my girlfriend and I was... I don't know. My thoughts were very mixed on next week's film, so I'm wondering if they will have improved by now. This yeah. is a remake, we should say. That's true. It is a remake. Uh, I think this is no one's only remake, technically, that I remember. Yeah, I mean, it's not is not his only adaption because yeah. Batman. Right. Yeah, Batman's a different story. And Dunkirk is based on true events, but right. it is interesting for a filmmaker who has done two original films. We just trashed on remakes, so mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. No one did we'll a remake see. of his own. I'm curious. It stars Robin Williams and Al Pacino. Some yeah. heavy hitters there. Yeah, so I'm I'm curious to see what my thoughts are, too. I, I remember liking this one more than I remember liking Memento when I first watched it. So I'll see if my thoughts hold up. This is one that, from looking at his filmography, feels the least like Nolan than the rest of his filmography. And I can see that from my memory, but I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to go in with 
fresh perspective next time. Mm-hmm. So next week, listeners, we will see you next time with Insomnia. My throat hurts. Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide. But Nolan deciding to toy with the fabric of reality itself is a whole new bar park in bullpark. <laughs> <laughs> I'm starting over from scratch.